psychologists and physicians and researchers have been abusing people for centuries. In the name of science, they've been tricking people, they've been lying to people, they've been harming people, and even killing people, particularly marginalized groups of people, like poor people, African-American people, and disabled people. When I was in grad school, I remember hearing about one or two instances of unethical research in psychology and psychotherapy. But then a patron asked me to do a deep dive on research ethics, and so I looked into the literature and the history of psychology and, and, and um, medical research. And I found a never-ending list of abuses by researchers over the decades and centuries. In the beginning, it was mainly medical researchers who were harming and killing people. And then as psychology gained prominence throughout the 20th century, they took their turn in harming their study uh, participants. And new abuses, even today, are being discovered uh, all the time. There was just a, a big story that came out a few years ago. So in preparation for this episode... I thought I would be able to provide a comprehensive list of all the main abuses in psychology because I really wanted to give you guys, you know, the full story. But the list is so long that I couldn't possibly include everything in one episode. And, you know, we wonder why people are so suspicious of us all the time. They should be suspicious of us. I'm suspicious of us now. We've committed terrible acts on the public. It's terrible. Well, that's what I want to talk about today, the history of research ethics and all the terrible things that have happened. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this, and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon, patreon, patreon.com. Patrons get access to all the premium episodes on their phones or on the Patreon page, but most people get the premium feed on their phone. When you become a patron, we'll tell you how to access the premium feed. And know that a portion of your monthly pledge goes toward various charities that we support. Okay, welcome to the Patron Zone people. Thank you for being a patron. That's super cool of you. So, as I said earlier, I couldn't possibly summarize the entire history of all the terrible things that have happened. So I decided to start with in recent history, because we can all imagine in the medieval ages, terrible things happening in all sorts of ways. So I decided just to sort of keep it to the contemporary decades because, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just decided to do that. So in 1840 is where we'll begin our journey here. We have the father of gynecology. This is... J. Marion Sims. Dr. Sims is considered the father of gynecology. So this is not going to end well, as you can probably tell. But he's respected is the thing. I just want to say he's not some fringe wacko that was just, you know, decided to do all these weird wacko experiments on people. He was 
he was the you know considered to be the father of gynecology uh, according to the researches I saw. Well, he performed surgical experiments. He wanted to find out what sort of things did what when you did various things to women's body, particularly their reproductive organs. And who else did he turn to? But I mean, so if you're listening out there, okay, 1840, United States, this is before the Civil War. So let's just imagine if you're uh, an experimenter and you're dying to conduct science and you're you're done working on dogs and cows or you know animals and rats and stuff and you're looking for humans. Well, let's just imagine who you're going to turn to if you're included in this list of terribleness. Well, many of you have guessed it. Yes, he turned to slaves. And he did his experiments without anesthesia because at the time, if I remember right, there anesthesia was in its infancy. I think the Civil War, they started using ether, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me on that. But I think a lot of people in the Civil War had their legs hacksawed off without any anesthesia other than alcohol. Uh, don't quote me on that. That's just off the top of my head. <laughs> but anyway, so the father of gynecology in the United States decides to do surgical experiment on women slaves without anesthesia. Incidentally, there's a bronze statue of him in New York City uh, near the New York Academy of Medicine. That's how revered he is. There's other memorials uh, for him uh, around Jefferson Medical College and South Carolina State Capitol in Columbia and um, in Montgomery, Alabama, and other kinds of things. He's a, he's a, he, everyone loves this guy because he did, I mean, so the thing is, is his work actually was successful in that it did produce knowledge that was helpful to the medical profession in terms of surgery and technique and discovering different cures for different problems. But when you look at his uh, methods, especially through today's eyes, it's on the, it's in the realm of, of Nazi death camps in terms of taking uh, imprisoned slaves, uh, you know, people who are a whole group of people who are being um, just uh, dominated and enslaved by another population, and then you just force them into um, you know these 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 just terrible experiments. He he uh, performed surgery on some of these people like thirty different times. It wasn't like he just did it once. He he cut into these people thirty different times and yet. If you know anything about surgery, even today, you know that that is that's an ordeal. But imagine in 1840 with no anesthesia. I mean, holy crap! Can you imagine just laying there, no anesthesia, while a doctor cuts into your belly 30 different times? It's it's just it's uh, terrible. Having said that, he did learn some things, but I think oh, again looked through research uh, ethics uh, lens, it's uh, a terrible price to pay. 
Women often died from infections resulting from these experiments, as you might imagine. Because if I'm not mistaken, the germ theory thing hadn't been accepted or even, uh, you know, the surgeons didn't necessarily wash their hands and they didn't know about uh, how infections actually happen and stuff. So, but again, don't quote me on that either. <laughs> I should stop talking off the top of my head. Anyway, uh, he reportedly, Sims, he reportedly forced the women to become addicted to morphine so that they would depend on him after the surgery so we could get them to be more compliant in future surgeries. He would give them opium and morphine as a way of trying to uh, calm their nerves after surgery, but then he would purposely keep them addicted so that because they would have to come back to him and say, I need, I need that stuff that you gave me because I'm starting to have withdrawal symptoms. Of course, they wouldn't say that. They would say, I need that stuff. Please give it to me. And he'd say, okay, well, how about you let me do another surgical experiment? And they said, yeah, 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 okay, fine, that's, that's fine. Just please give me some, some of that stuff. Many other physicians in the 1800s around the world would perform experiments on humans without, without their permission, often with marginalized groups of people. So I'm just going to summarize the 1800s that way. Sims, the father of gynecology, is a famous case, but he's by no means the only case. It was happening all over the place. Okay, so now let's jump forward to 1895 after the Civil War. New York City, pediatrician Henry Hyman, Hyman, Henry Hyman, Henry Hyman. He intentionally infected two mentally disabled boys with gonorrhea to see what would happen. As we'll see as we go through the history of terrible experiments, there's a lot of syphilis and gonorrhea terribleness that happens, which I, I, I don't really understand why, but, um, but there you go. So this is the one story along those lines. New York City pediatrician Henry Hyman intentionally infected two mentally disabled boys, again, marginalized groups, with gonorrhea to see what would happen. In 1906, U.S. Army doctors in the Philippines, so here we go, it's, you know, as we start to colonize other areas, we see whole new groups of victims. U.S. Army doctors in the Philippines infected prisoners with bubonic plague and cholera without their consent and without informing them of the experiment. This is a common theme among these experiments is you don't get their consent and you don't even tell them that you're doing something. They would essentially take the feces of, of known infected people and feed it back to the prisoners as a way of giving them bubonic plague and cholera. And the prisoners didn't even know. They just thought they were being fed. And as a result, 17 of the test subjects died as a result. So this is the U.S. government, the Army, conducting experiments on uh, infect, uh, on prisoners in the Philippines, which is awful. During World War II, in Europe, German scientists conduct, conducted horrific research on concentration camp prisoners. You probably have heard about that. Nazi uh, scientists were taking concentration camp prisoners, mainly Jewish people, 
and doing all sorts of just terrible, terrible things to, to people, which we would consider to be unethical today. Japanese scientists at the, at the time were also conducting horrific research on Chinese prisoners. As is often forgotten to at least American people, Japanese, I'm Japanese, so I, you know, I, I know about this because I'm interested in Japanese history and Asian history. But, you know, when you think about the terrible, the terrible people of the 20th century, everyone always thinks that the Nazis. But in a lot of ways, the Japanese people were just as bad, if not worse, to other Asians. And along those lines, Soviet, Russia, Stalin, and, and others were also equally terrible to uh, you know millions and millions of people. Uh, so if, if you really want to um, learn about comparable horribleness to Nazi Germany, read up about uh, Soviet early Soviet abuses and and then Japanese in the 30s and and, and early 40s. It, it's just it's 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 one of the things that when I tell people about it, they're like, "Huh, I didn't know that." Because a lot of Americans think think of Japanese people as these docile Hello Kitty people, you know, and certainly that's true today, but that was not the case in the past. Japanese people were brutal, brutal to their enemies. I mean, just uh, terrible. So German scientists, Japanese scientists were both doing terrible medical research on their prisoners in during World War II. Um, and after World War II, there's there's this huge awareness of what the German, particularly the Nazis, were doing to Jewish people during uh, during the war. It, you know, slowly as reports come out, it's the American people, the the Western world starts to wake up to what can happen when there's no guidelines regarding the ethics of, of experimentation. And it really shines a light on how, how evil scientists can become if, if, if they're not um, reined in. Not all scientists, but, but some scientists. And also you have this opportunity for the Western world to look at an enemy and say, look at what Nazi Germany was doing. And then other reports start coming out saying, well, in some ways, we've all been doing this, and so I think we should all start looking at this. So in 1945, at the end of World War II, Vannevar Bush, not sure if I'm pronouncing that name right, Vannevar Bush writes a report that defends the ideal of self-governance within the scientific community. So Bush is writing in response to an upwelling of a movement to say, hey, we, we have to impose rules on scientists. Otherwise, this stuff is going to happen all the time. So Bush writes this report and says, hey, hey, wait, 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 we can self-govern. We can govern ourselves. We don't need outside intervention. So uh, please stay out of science government because we can do this ourselves. And 
if we allow the government to get their hands on science, they're going to ruin scientists. They're going to ruin science for everybody. So we, we can govern ourselves. And I'm not exactly sure of how this all played out, but I would, from the little I understand, I would argue that Bush is wrong if you're looking at the course of history because the abuses did not stop after World War II. So then let's skip forward to 1947, just two years after the end of World War II. There were a number of trials for war crimes for Nazis and other people. Nuremberg trials. And as a result of those investigations and what was learned from all that, the Nuremberg Code, a code from the Nuremberg trials, was developed to guide research on human subjects. So it's not just research on, on of any sort. It's like, well, if you're, if you're going to involve humans in your research, this is a guideline for how to do that so that terrible things don't happen. And because essentially what happened was in the, and I'm, I'm in inferring a little bit here after the war, they, the allies, the Western world, they wanted to prosecute Nazis. They, they, they wanted them to be punished for what they had done. And they wanted justice. And there were a lot of people, they wanted justice. They didn't want just the war to end. They didn't want, it's like, okay, well, Germany lost. So let's put them back in their country and they have to get out of France and they have to get out of Poland and and so, you know, okay, moving on. And so, no, 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 we need to put these people on trial. And some of these people have to be put to death. And some of these people have to be put in prison because this is not acceptable. And so, and I'm not a historian, so take everything I'm saying here with a, with a grain of salt. But I'm fairly sure I'm getting this right. Who knows? So the Western world, the allies, you know, England, United States, France, um, these these people, they get together and they say, okay, well, we, we, we got to put these people on trial. And so they put, they put them on trial, the Nazis on trial and, and others. And they also put the Nazi scientists on trial because the, the scientists were uh, presumably just going to go scot-free after, after the war. And they're like, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. So let's put them on trial. Well, because there was no guideline for – to, to say what they did was wrong, they, they were like, we need to develop some guidelines as to what constitutes ethical and legal scientific study because uh, previously to World War II, scientists could do uh, seemingly whatever they wanted to. And so we got to develop some kind of code. And so they developed this Nuremberg Code retroactively and said, okay, Nazi scientists – you have committed war crimes because you broke this Nuremberg Code that we just developed after the war. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but, it, you know, it's, it seems a little funny. So the Nuremberg Code was the first international document that laid out the ethics of research on human people. And it, it, it said you have to get uh, the, the participants to volunteer. You can't force people into into research. And you also have to inform them about what they're getting into. 
So these two phrases are, these two areas are voluntary participation and informed consent. Uh, you therapists out there will know that phrase, informed consent, because you always have to get your clients informed consent before entering into treatment. So no one seemed to care about you know these these issues until we saw what the Nazis did, which I just find it. There's so many things about psychology that were established because of World War II, PTSD research. Um, there's there's just a whole assessment was highly you know because you had the government paying psychologists to assess whether people were fit to do X Y or Z, and so there's so many because World War II was such a uh, a world event and so much, so many funds were poured into various different things. And it's just interesting that research ethics came out of this as well. This seemed to, this Nuremberg code, code seemed to wake everyone up to the fact that we needed rules and that these rules are important. But it took a while before we really followed the rules is the thing. <laughs> I mean, so 1947, the Nuremberg Code is a major event, but, and you think, okay, now we're good. Absolutely not. Abuses continued to happen. So 1950, the government wanted to conduct a simulation of a biological warfare attack. So after World War II, you have the Cold War between the Soviet Union, United States, and there was a lot of fear of weapons of mass destruction. That was the new, uh, that was the new boogeyman. You had the atomic bomb, and you also had the notion of of chemical warfare. And so, the government wanted to see. Well, let's you know, let's simulate a biological warfare attack, and and you know, let, we got if we got it, we need to know what this will look like, because it's hard to, you know, really know what it's going to look like. So the U.S. Navy sprayed large quantities of, of something, some sort of biological agent, all over the city of San Francisco. <laughs> Can you imagine if they did this today? I mean, ah, oh. and of course... This is where all the conspiracy theories come out of, right? You have the chemtrail people and the Illuminati people, and it's like these stories don't help those conspiracy theories, you know, or the, the, the you know, to refute the Anyway, so the, the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Navy, we're talking like thousands and thousands of, of, of people headed by the, the government, the United States. Okay. Sprayed large quantities of some sort of biological agent over the city of San Francisco and many people became sick. And so the, so the Navy went, you know, went into the community and started documenting how many people got sick and one man actually died from this. So the U S Navy and there again, so this is after the Nuremberg code, no informed consent. They didn't, of course they didn't tell anyone in San Francisco, by the way, we're going to be dumping a bunch of biological material all over you. They didn't say that. And they didn't get a, a voluntary participation. You know, they didn't say, do you agree or, uh, or would you like to participate in this study or not? 
And of course, they would know that if they even asked one person that, that the game would be over because they'd go to the press or you know the, the entire city would become vacant or something because no one would who who would want to be in that study plus it's not like they paid any of these people or or gave them any sort of compensation they just dumped a bunch of crap on the city of san francisco and a bunch of people got sick okay so years later the family of the man who died sued the government which uh they should have and they should have won but the court ruled in favor of the government hmm Interesting. Imagine that happening today. The government dumps a bunch of biological material over your city, and then your father dies as a result, and then you sue the government, and the government's like, yeah. The And the court's, you know, like, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? Research is needed, and so some people are going to die because of that. It's just, uh, it's just mind-blowing. All right. And again, remember, I'm skipping over a lot of other infamous stories just for the sake of time. All right. 1950s. We have one of our most famous psychological experiments. Operation Midnight Climax. I'm not even joking that this is the And once you hear the actual uh, experiment, the name makes sense. But so <laughs> the... Um, the operation by the CIA. So the CIA, again, Cold War, and they're starting to freak out about the Soviets, as they should. You know, the one thing that I, I want to just point out is in the 50s and 60s, uh, and even into the 70s and 80s, because I grew up in the 70s and 80s, there was considerable reason to believe that the Soviets were going to launch a, a nuclear attack on the United States. Now, looking back, we're like, oh, isn't that quaint that we worried about that? But if you actually study the history, there were several times where we were just millimeters away from a full-on nuclear World War III. And that the thought of that was just so horrible. And if you're in the 50s, you're thinking, okay, we had World War I in which millions upon millions upon millions of people died and for, for nothing. It was just like one nation's, you know, Germany's uh, hubris in terms of wanting power and, and millions and millions of people died all over the world. And you think, okay, well, no one's ever going to do that again. And then just a couple centuries later, boom, or a couple decades later, boom, happens again. Same country, Germany, decides to start a war, and Japan joins in, and millions upon... I shouldn't say Japan uh, uh, joined in. They were fully uh, instigators of the war without Nazis. But you have these, just, again, millions and millions of people dying, and you're sitting there thinking, well, who's next? Well, the Soviet Union, I mean, they're certainly uh, belligerent, at least according to, you know, history. And they have a volatile system, a new government that's just starting. And and they have tremendous power. And they have a lot of 
uh, chips on their shoulder, sh- shoulders and a lot of bones to pick with the Western world. So something's, something's going to happen in all likelihood. And things were happening in these little areas, Afghanistan, Vietnam, but uh, Cuba, but it was, it was a lot of it in South America. So there, was, there were fights that were happening. It just wasn't full-on World War III. And so the CIA is tasked with trying to be our eyes and ears of when's it going to happen? How is it going to happen? How can we stop this from happening? So this wasn't just like uh, the way you think of CIA today, where they're just dealing with little tiny pockets of terrorists. This was full uh, human annihilation uh, that could have happened. Because if there was a nu- nuclear war, and particularly the 60s when there was enough armament, uh, to, it could have been complete annihilation entire human race. And... So if you're the CIA and you're thinking, okay, well, man, we got we to gotta figure out how to be the best intelligence agency of all time. Well, we're going to use everything at our disposal. And, and, and the fact that you pretty much have, you're like 007, you have a license to kill by the U.S. government because you're like, look, you know, do what you got to do to make to, to make this happen. And, and, you know, as long as no one hears about it, then that's OK. And so so when you give a, a group of people a fair amount of justifiable paranoia and a license to kill and a lot of funds and the right to be secretive, even to the government itself, then you're going to you're going to get some interesting uh, things and honestly, I'm surprised more terrible things didn't happen. The The things that did happen uh, are pretty um, minor in scale in terms of what I'm about to talk about. But it, but they're still terrible <laughs> when we think about the uh, research, research ethics codes and this sort of thing. Okay, so we have Operation Midnight Climax. And before moving forward, I just want to say, again, I'm not a historian. And any historians out there listening to me will just be like, oh, Kirk, how quaint of you to think you can speak with authority about history. So, you know, feel free to, to yell at me if you want. Um, I, I always know what I'm step, or at least I try to know when I'm stepping outside of my professional expertise and into my just sort of hobby interest in history. And so in this way, it's the same whenever I hear non people, uh, non-clinicians, non-people, <laughs> when I hear non-clinicians talk about psychology and psychotherapy, I, I, I always cringe or roll my eyes because the language they use is, is always off. You know, I could just, oh, you're trying to talk about psychology right now. And you're, you're trying to talk about, about uh, psychotherapy right now. And isn't that quaint that you think you know what you're talking about when uh, I just, so I, whenever I speak outside of my area of expertise, I always want to say also that I know I'm talking outside my area of expertise. And um, having said that, some of you out there I know are not clinicians and actually can speak with uh, a lot of authority and expertise regarding psychology. So I don't want to insult any non non-clinicians. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, Operation Midnight Climax. Okay. The CIA, they set up several brothels. So they 
invented brothels. So this is, <laughs> you know, the story is just starting great right from the start. The, the CIA set up several brothels in San Francisco and New York City. I don't know why San Francisco is the target for all this strangeness, but, but it is. Uh, so CIA s- sets up several brothels in San Francisco and New, and New York City. And then the CIA h- hires a bunch of prostitutes. And the CIA, with government funds, puts the prostitutes on the payroll. So these prostitutes become government employees to have sex with men. <laughs> uh, do you think Hillary emails are a scandal? Okay. So the prostitutes on the CIA payroll were instructed to secretly dose clients with a wide range of substances, including LSD. And then the CIA agents would sit behind a one-way mirror and would watch what would happen and would film it. And they would study these films. Okay, so let me just paint a picture in your head. A hapless John, as they call them, right? A hapless client, shall we? Sex worker client comes in to the sex worker room and the woman offers him a drink or something and it has LSD in it. And then he, she gives him the drink and he drinks the drink and now he's been dosed with LSD, but he doesn't know it. And then they start having sex because that's the whole point he starts to have a trip. He starts to trip and he starts to have effects. And meanwhile, they're naked on the bed, having sex, being filmed behind a one-way mirror and CIA agents, male, probably white dudes, watching behind a one-way mirror. So you just have to wonder who came up with this, you know? And, And why... Why the brothels? Because it seems like if you really wanted to just secretly dose people with LSD, there's a there's a number of different ways you could do that, right? Why does it have to be with prostitutes having sex with the participants at the time? Um, I mean, maybe they thought, well, you know, these clients are breaking the law, so, you know, they deserve what they what they get. I I don't know. There's a lot of this kind of thing of just like, well, they're already prisoners. So, you know, they, they deserve what, what they're going to get, or they're already breaking the law. So they're probably not going to complain because then they'll have to admit that they were doing something wrong. Okay. So you have that funny little story, operation midnight climax. It, It sounds like a porn movie already. Operation Midnight. There probably is a porn movie called Operation Midnight Climax. Okay. I tried to find out if they actually learned anything from these from this research, but um I couldn't find much. I think they were all they were trying to find out if LSD would make people tell the truth. Uh and, and then you, so you could take uh you could try to find out if someone was an agent or you could you could blackmail some I don't know. Anyway, Also in the 1950s, researchers at Medical College of Virginia performed experiments on severe burn victims. Now, 
you, you have a, a hospital and you're like, okay, we want to do experiments on burn victims. Well, let's see, who should we do the experiments on? Hmm. Well, do we do it on the, on the wealthy white people? Mm, nah, let's do it on the poor black people. Yeah, let's do it on the, So that's what they did. Poor and black, they did this experiment without their consent and without uh, you know, informing them as to what's happening. So they, they have these poor black patients who have severe burns and uh, the Medical College of Virginia decides, yeah, let's, let's see what happens to them. And the U.S. government was funding this, this research. The subjects were exposed to radioactive isotopes. Essentially, they're just irradiating these people. And this led to uh, a lot of deaths, as you can imagine. Sort of thinking like, well, what happened? So this is, I'm guessing, research that was trying to ask the question, what happens to people when they're exposed to radiation? Because the first time we experimented on this, in a sense, was when we dropped the two bombs in Japan. And afterwards, the, the you know, among those people who were close enough to become irradiated, but far enough away not to be killed by the explosion or the, or the fire or the heat, they started coming down with all this, with radiation sickness. And so there were, there was research there, but then they wanted to do more research to find out what else would happen. And, and so they're thinking, well, uh, we need some human subjects, so let's do it on these poor black people. To me, it's like, uh, and I'm sure they were uh, doing it on animals, but it seems like isn't aren't animals enough? I mean, aren't they good? I mean, it's still terrible to do it on. And you know, there are people out there I know who think that animal research is terrible, and I, I tend to agree with that. But anyway, so let's go to 1960. The 60s, Beatles, The Stones, The Doors, uh, The Who. <laughs> okay, 1960. Um, the U.S. government, again, U.S. government, funded non-consensual experiments on, guess who? Poor black people. They were not told what was being done to them. They were try- the researchers were trying to determine the effects of high levels of radiation on the human body. So again, more, more of that sort of stuff. 1961, in response to the Nuremberg trials, Yale psychologist Stanley Milgram, again, now we're getting into some really juicy psychology stuff, Milgram. Stanley Milgram at Yale, he performed his obedience to authority study Obedience to Authority Study, also known as, popularly known as the Milgram Experiment. If you're a psychology person, you probably have seen the footage from this experiment. Basically, he wanted to know if it was possible that the Nazi genocide could have resulted from millions of people who were just following orders instead of being evil. So it's 1961, and... The, the, the atrocities of Nazi Germany are starting to come out, you know, and they're starting to discover it because they didn't know about it uh, as 
nearly as much as what was happening during the war. So after the war, they start going, my God, the Nazis were just doing terrible things. Of course, they're completely ignoring the atrocities that Japan had done to, to Chinese people because, uh, you know, racism and who cares about Chinese people, uh, you know, Americans at the time. But anyway, the Americans are much more to identify with Nazi Germany. And here's a little forgotten thought is that of like a huge proportion of Americans are actually German, particularly at this time. It's something that a lot of people don't realize because you have two world wars that are just, that make Germany look terrible. And so you have a lot of German Americans who shed their German identity or they just acculturated or sort of mixed in with the American culture. And so they, uh, but, but there's a lot of Germans. So, uh, you have a lot of Americans looking at Nazi Germany as a as someone they can identify with, and they're thinking, how could they have done these things? I mean, if they could do these things, does that mean we could do these things? And so psychology set out to answer those questions of just like, how did this happen? And, and how can we stop it from happening again? How do we understand this? And a lot of people were basically just saying, well, you know, Nazis, they're evil, they were evil. They must have been evil. They must have been terrible, evil psychopaths. But when they actually started looking at the data, you're you're thinking, well, we're talking like millions of Nazis, millions of Germans doing terrible, terrible things, participating or at least consenting, allowing terrible things to happen. So they couldn't possibly all be psychopaths. So what's happening here, you know? And uh, so Milgram steps up and says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll design a study and maybe I can figure out why this happened. And he designs this study, and maybe I'll do a whole episode just on, this, on the Milgram experiment, but he, he does, the, and you've seen it where, uh, perhaps you have, in which the, the experiment is set up where you have a, a guy in a, on a, in a lab coat, a white lab coat, and they bring in this participant for the study, and they say, okay, you're going to quiz this guy, uh, this other guy, and he's on the other side of this, of this wall. And every time he gets a question wrong, you're going to electrocute him. And every time he gets one wrong, you're going to increase the electricity power. Uh, and so uh, what the experiment is trying to see is, can a, an, a person of authority, the person in the lab coat, can that person make someone do an evil act just because they're being told to do that? You know, if you just asked a random person on the street to walk up to another person on the street and randomly electrocute them, they wouldn't do that. They'd be like, no, I'm not going to harm that person over there. But if you set up a, an experiment or you set up a social situation such that the individual feels as though they're, they're under orders and, and they, they have to follow those orders, then this experiment was set out to see, will the person forego their moral sense of, of good and alt- altruism towards other people? Will they forego that for just following orders? And the experiment showed that for, some, for many people, they would actually uh, continue to follow the orders up until the point where 
the so the person they were electrocuting on the other side of the wall was an actor, so they weren't actually electrocuting him, but the, it, it seemed as though they were. And there was some, and at a certain point, uh, at a certain intensity of electricity, the the you know the person behind the wall was instructed to just stop uh, screaming. So you know, more and more electricity, more and more screaming, ah, 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 and then it gets to a certain point, and the person stops screaming, and so presumably the person's unconscious or maybe even dead, and some of these participants would continue to electrocute that person, not because they were psychopaths, presumably, but because they were being told by an, uh, by a person in authority. Now, the reason why I should do an entire episode on this experiment is because. The findings are often said, oh, okay, well, clearly, if you're in authority, you will, you'll do anything you're told. But when you actually look at the data, it's a lot more nuanced than that. There's, there's a lot of controversy around what exactly the Milgram experiment exactly means. But we have an example here of you're forcing someone to believe uh, these participants in terms of research ethics, you're forcing this person to believe that they may have just killed somebody. So that's where the research ethics come into play. You can't, you can't design a research study in which you make it so that um, the participant is led to believe that they killed someone or, or severely harmed another human being. That's going to mess with your head. You're, it's going to be traumatic. I mean, imagine if you go into an experiment and uh, you you believe you killed someone in, in the process of that of that experiment. That's that's traumatic to you. And even if after the experiment they're like, "Oh, we were just joking," that's or we were just that's just part of the research design. You didn't actually kill this person. The person's alive and well, and and here he is. For a portion of time, you would be led to believe you killed someone, and that's going to leave a mark. It's sort of like when people uh, scare other people. I, I, I actually really hate this, when they pull a prank on someone, like on Ellen, when people sneak up behind someone and scare them. I consider this to be unethical. It's terrible. It, it, for, for some people, it's obviously funny, but for other people, it's actually traumatic because for that split second... They don't know it's a trick. They, you know, immediately after that, they're laughing like, oh my God. But for that split second, the brain believes that they are going to die. And the brain uh, creates pathways that can create a, a syndrome afterwards uh, akin to PTSD or full-blown PTSD. And so it, it's not okay to trick someone into something that traumatizes them if if only later you're like, oh, no, no, never mind, you weren't actually having a bad thing happen to you. I mean, it's akin to, uh, like, you fake rape somebody, and then afterwards you're like, oh, no, I was just joking, I wasn't really raped. It's like, that that that's not okay. It's not, that's, that's extremely harmful to people, and ethical research should not be harming people. Anyway, so that's, that's, the Milgram experiment, obedience to authority study, famous, famous study there. And it's on YouTube if you want to watch it. 1963, Birth of the Beatles, uh, their first album comes out. University of Washington, my alma mater here in Seattle. University of Washington, UW, 
they're actually playing tonight, the Huskies. They're doing awesome this, this year. They haven't done as, this well since I was in school uh, in 92. Hoping for a national championship this year. University of Washington, home of the Huskies and Kirk Honda. <laughs> uh, researchers irradiated the testes. That's a testicle plural. <laughs> irradiated the testes of... 232 prisoners to determine the effects of radiation on testicular function. So again, 1963 university researchers, UW has a, it's, you know, one of those top research medical universities. And so in 1963, they're like, huh, I wonder what radiation does to testicular function. Well, we couldn't, we, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy to find, uh, privileged people to experiment on because they won't agree to it or they'll sue us or something. Hmm. Let's do prisoners. Yeah. Prisoners. They don't, they have no rights. So let's just do it to them. When these inmates late later left prison and started having children, many of them had children who were born with birth defects, which is just a super tragedy because of these medical researchers, children were born with with defects it's just it's just uh uh terrible okay all right so 1964 this is uh i think the beatles have uh by by the end of 64 they have four albums yeah two albums 63 two albums 64 if i remember right meet the beatles anyway the world medical association established the declaration of helsinki Helsinki is a great word to say, Helsinki, you know. It just sounds like something someone would make up as a heavy metal band name. Tonight, Helsinki is going to blow your brain things. Okay. World Medical Association established the Declaration of Helsinki, which provides recommendations regarding research with human subjects. So the World Medical Association is like, hmm, the Nuremberg Code isn't, it doesn't seem to be working. So Declaration of Helsinki, let's do that. And it lays it out very um, uh, systematically in terms of, of what the guidelines are. And here are those guidelines. Research with humans should be based on the results of laboratory and animal experimentation. So in other words, before you do research on humans, you need to first start with laboratory and animal subjects. You need to start with, you need to, you need to do some lab experiments, you need to do some animal experiments, and then you should start doing research on humans. The purpose of this is like, okay, if we give this drug to rats and half of them die, then we probably shouldn't do that research on humans, right? Okay. Number two, research protocols should be reviewed by an independent committee prior to initiation. This is a very important implementation, very important rule. So again, research protocols, so the research design, the, the, whole, you know, the whole plan for the research study, needs to be reviewed by an independent committee prior to the beginning of the study. This 
is a very important mechanism in the uh, pursuit of ethical research. Because if you just, if you don't have this, you basically just have researchers saying, yeah, I've thought about it. This looks ethical to me. But they're, of course, biased because it's their design and they want it to go forward. And if it goes forward, they're the ones who are going to benefit if things go interestingly. You know, research, it can make you famous. It can give you a Nobel Prize. It can, you know, make you famous like Milgram or Zimbardo. Zimbardo uh, later became... um, the president of the American Psychological Association. And so it, if, if you can pull off interesting research, it's a big deal. And so uh, you're going to be highly motivated to see your research design as ethical. But if you have an independent committee, review it and say, because mm, the independent committee doesn't benefit from the research at all. They're independent. They're not they don't benefit from you conducting this research. And so they're, so they are going to look at it from a hopefully unbiased uh, perspective. Okay. Number three, informed consent much must be established. You must inform your participants about what they're getting into, and then you must get their consent. This is also very important, but related to the Nuremberg code. Research, number four, research should be conducted by scientifically qualified individuals. This is seemingly an obvious one, but not established necessarily prior to this. So you can't just be some rando conducting scientific research. You have to be qualified. And what constitutes qualification is a little debatable, but... um, you know, at least this says, look, we, you need you need to be qualified, and we perhaps need to define what what those qualifications are. And number five, the risks of the study should not exceed the benefits. So this is a very important, and 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 I like this rule because say you are going to do um, an experiment on a group of a hundred people, and the chance that this 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 treatment, this drug, the chance that this drug is going to kill them is 50%. So you, you say, okay, well, if we're going to give the, the 100 people this drug, 50 of them, we expect 50 of them to die from this drug. Okay, so the, that's a high risk, you know, a 50% chance of dying. But let's also imagine that, that this treatment is for a form of pancreatic cancer that is guaranteed to kill you within 12 months. So you have 100 people who 99%, 99 of them are going to die, according to statistics, within 12 months. But this drug might cure them of their pancreatic cancer, but it, 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 has, a, it, it has a 50% chance of actually killing the participant. Well, and again, I'm sure uh, I'm not sure as to the answer to this question, but this this is this is what this fifth rule of the Declaration of Helsinki is talking about, because there's a high risk, but the benefit of learning whether or not this medication will actually save lives is actually very high. So you have a high benefit, you have a very high benefit, and a moderately high risk. 
And so the benefit outweighs the risk. Now, I'm not saying this is exactly how you should rule on that particular example, but so it's not as it, so instead of saying you should never do risky uh, uh, research, they're saying the benefits need to outweigh the risks. So if your benefit is just finding out whether or not gonorrhea spreads in one way or another, uh, which is, you know, it's a benefit to know. It's like, how does gonorrhea get spread around? Uh, but your research protocol is uh, risky in terms of it might, in, it might infect some of your participants. Then you're going to say, uh, the risks involved in this study don't outweigh, are, are too, they, the risks are higher than the benefits. You know, there's a little bit of benefit in terms of new knowledge, but the risk involved in terms of actually accidentally infecting our participants, that's too high. So we can't, this research design, this research protocol is not, it, we got to go back to the drawing board on this one. Okay. So the Declaration of Helsinki, 1964. Okay. That brings us to 1965 when the Beatles released Help and my favorite album, Rubber Soul, the English version of that album, not the uh, American. Me and Berto actually performed that entire album from beginning to end live at a Hawaiian restaurant a while ago. <laughs> I don't know how good it was, but man, I had fun. Okay, 1965. This is one of my favorite, favoritest stories in psychological research because it has a hero and his name is Peter Buxton, an American dude. And he's one of us. He's a social worker. He's 27, 1965, Peter Buxton. We in psychology, if we ever had a hero, this is one of our heroes, Peter Buxton. He's a 27-year-old social worker in San Francisco working for the Public Health Service and he's interviewing patients about their STIs, their sexually transmitted infections, or venereal diseases, as they were called back in the day, VDs. And he is part of a project to document how STIs or venereal diseases are being transmitted. Okay, pretty common, you know, sort of activity. And in his uh, work, he comes across this study that's being conducted currently called the Tuskegee Experiment. Tuskegee Experiment. I'm guessing Tuskegee is a Native American word of some kind. I think Tuskegee is a, is a town. Let me look that up. Yeah, Tuskegee is in Alabama. Tuskegee, Alabama. It has a population of only 10,000. <laughs> so a very small little town in Alabama, very small little town. Okay. So Peter Buxton, our hero in San Francisco, in his reading of the literature on different SDI experimentation, he comes across this study called the Tuskegee experiment. And he learns that the U.S. government, again, U.S. government, has been sponsoring a study, meaning paying for it, that has been, uh, this study has been monitoring the health of 400 poor black men who were purposely infected with syphilis. So he learns that the study began 
33 years prior in 1932. So Peter Buxton comes across this this experiment, the literature on this experiment. He's like, huh, this experiment goes back to 32, and 400 poor black men are infected with syphilis. Hmm, let's, let's, read, let's read into this here. He learns that the researchers, these medical researchers, have been deceiving the subjects by not telling them that they're in the study. They've been telling these men that they were receiving treatments for, quote-unquote, bad blood. So for 33 years, these innocent men have been asked to come to the doctor for treatment of bad blood. They're saying, you got bad blood, you got to come to the doctor every now and then. And so they're, oh, I got bad blood. So they go to the doctor, and they get different injections and different tests. But in reality, these doctors are not treating them with, for anything. They're just monitoring their syphilis and publishing the results without their consent and without telling them that they even have syphilis. Now, I should back up and say I'm not exactly sure if the government infected them with syphilis or they just happened to get syphilis. I think they might have just happened to get syphilis that came to the doctor and then the doctor said, ooh, this guy has syphilis. I'm going to include him in this. I'm going to include them in this study, but I'm not going to tell him that they have syphilis. Okay. So again, 33 years, these men have been going to the doctor for treatment for quote-unquote bad blood, but they don't have bad blood because that's ridiculous. There's no such thing. They, in fact, have syphilis, and they're not telling them they have syphilis, and they've been just taking different medical uh, measures to see what syphilis does to you over the years. Also, Peter Buxton, our hero, learns that when penicillin became available in the 1950s, the researchers did not allow the infected subject to get treatment. In some cases, along these lines, when some of the men were diagnosed as having syphilis by another doctor, because so they go to another doctor and this doctor's like, huh, you have syphilis. And the doctor's like, uh, I have a simple remedy for that. It's called penicillin. It's this new treatment. Uh, how about I get you a prescription for that? Well, the researchers learn about what's happening, and they rush in, and they tell the doctor, do not tell this man he has syphilis, or go back to this man and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, you don't have syphilis, because the researchers wanted the person to keep their syphilis and not get treated because they wanted to see what would happen to these people over the years. Isn't that interesting? So Peter Buxton comes across this study, and he also learns that, you know, since this thing's been going on for 33 years, that a lot of other people have looked at this study. People have been monitoring the, the, the data and the reports from this study for years. And he, he's, he's looking at this. He's like, wait, so what? They're doing what to who? And all these people have signed off on this thing and no one said anything yet? And uh, it should be noted that Peter Buxton is a white guy. I just want to point that out. He's, he's a white dude. There were good white dudes back in the 60s. You don't have to look too far in history to identify that. There were assholes too, but there were, there were nice ones. So upon discovering this study, Peter Buxton is outraged, as he should be. And in 1966, in the year Revolver came out, perhaps my second favorite 
um, Beatles album. He submitted a formal complaint. Peter Buxton submits a formal complaint to the researchers, not not to any you know agency of it. Just like, hey, I'm writing you to inform you that I think what you're doing is unethical. These uh, men should be informed that they have syphilis and they should they re- they should receive treatment. And you're lying to them and you're forcing them to to keep their syphilis. And you're not telling them that they have syphilis. This is awful. You know, and, and these 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 men are marginalized by society and you're you're victimizing them. <laughs> and you need to stop that. I don't know exactly what he said, but I imagine that's what he said. So the researchers receive Peter Buxton's formal complaint, and guess what they do? They decide, they, they, they reflect upon their terribleness, and they say, Peter Buxton, you're right. We've been wrong all these years. Thank you for telling us. No, that's a fantasy. Of course they didn't do that. They just re- ignored him. They said they, they took his letter, and they put it in the circular file, otherwise known as the wastebasket, or what people in Britain call the the rubbish the rubbish bin. What do they call it? Dust bin. Dust. I don't know what you guys call it over there. Okay. <laughs> A couple of years later, 1968. Uh, by now, you got Sergeant Pepper's. You got Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, Yellow Submarine is in there somewhere. A couple of years later, 1968, Peter Buxton, he's still angry. And he's like, fuck that, man. I, I sent a formal complaint and they, they just ignored me. I'm Peter Buxton. I'm a hero in psychological research. I'm not going to take that shit. And so he files another complaint. He's like, hey, I will not be ignored. These poor black men need to be treated and they need to be given an opportunity to sue your asses because of the shit you've done to them. And this time, the researchers are like, you know what, Peter Buxton? We, we put your first letter in the garbage, but the second letter, you know what? Uh, you really convinced us this time. No, of course not. Fantasy world here. We're talking about privileged, white, educated males here, okay? In the 60s. And so, of course, they ignored him again. So Peter Buxton could have given up. He could have said, ah, fuck it. It's too much, too much work. The system is against me. I can't, uh, I can't go on. This is, you know, it's not going to work. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't give up. 1972, he's still at it. We're talking, what, seven years later after he learned about the study and guess what he does? Oh, I just get chills thinking about it. Instead of going back to the researchers and asking politely, what does he do? He goes to the press. Goes to the press and the story is published. New York Times, everywhere. Front page news. Government-sponsored medical research has been fucking over poor black people. Isn't this terrible? And... You know, you know, here I'm just like, hey, uh, 1972, you know, all the newspapers owned by, guess what, you know, white males in all likelihood. But they're, uh, they're progressive people and they're just like, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to put this out there. 
And the people are outraged in general. They're like, what? This is terrible. Particularly the African-American community. You know, we're coming off of civil rights now. We're, we're, we're coming off of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. And uh, African-American community is just like, okay, prime example of how the American government has been fucking over our people for centuries. Even after slavery was made illegal, even after all this, even after segregation has been eliminated, the American government is still doing terrible things to us. And this is just one example. Congress reacts, as they should, and they conduct an investigation on the study, and they conduct an investigation on other studies. You know, because suddenly other studies are starting to come to life. Like, oh, well, there's other studies where people are doing terrible things. So the U.S. government says to the researchers, you got to stop this. You know, they, that's, that's it. This Tuskegee experiment, you got to put an end to it. And you got to get these men treated for their syphilis. This is not okay. So then the National Commission, so I just want to say, Peter Buxton American hero, Peter Buxton, American hero. The Nash, as a result of all this, the National Commission for Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research was formed. So this National Commission basically for, you know, ethical research on humans is formed. And it was in charge of identifying the basic ethical principles that should underlie the conduct of human research which have already been established by the Helsinki thing, but, you know, what are you going to do? The commission drafted the Belmont Report, which has become the foundational document for ethics of human subjects research. Many decades later, we're not many, two decades later, (laughs) in 1997, President Bill Clinton apologized formally uh, to the participants of the study and their families, the Tuskegee experiments. Bill, Bill Clinton, 97, apologized formally to them. All because Peter Buxton, American hero, would not let it go. All right. 1971, we got Stanford University psychologist Philip Zimbardo. You psychology people out there should know that name, Philip Zimbardo, 1971. He conducted the Stanford Prison Experiment, in which 24 male students were randomly assigned to roles of prisoners or guards in a mock prison situation. And this mock prison was in the basement of the Stanford Psychology Building. The experiment was extremely controversial because of ethical concerns of Zimbardo's lack of intervention as the guards increased their abuse of the prisoners. So I'm actually, I'm going to do a whole episode on the Zimbardo experiment because I think that it's fascinating. So I won't go into it too much here. So I'll do another episode on that. All right, 1974. Because of the publicity from the Tuskegee syphilis study, and the, the, uh, in 1974, we have the National Research Act 
of night of 1974 is passed. And a commission drafted the Belmont report, which became the foundational document of ethics research. And as I was saying earlier, uh, during the Tuskegee discussion, um, Belmont report is a big deal. And it established three basic ethical principles, respect for persons, beneficence, meaning you got to benefit people and justice. So respect for people, you got to benefit people and there has to be justice. So these are the cornerstones for the regulations involving human subjects in research. Okay. Skipping forward to the eighties, 1986. I'm 15 at this point and a sophomore in high school. And I'm about to turn 16 at the end of the year and get my, actually I didn't get my license until I, I didn't, I was one of those kids. I didn't really care about getting my license. My parents told me, you know, Kirk, when you get your license, don't think you're just going to be able to drive one of our cars because, you know, you're, you're, you're just, you're just going to get a license. You're not also going to get a car. So in my head, I'm like, well, what's the point of getting a license if I'm not going to be able to drive? And then at a certain point, my parents were like, you got to get your license because we want you to be able to drive yourself. So go out there and get a license. And I'm like, well, am I going to be able to drive the car? And they're like, absolutely. Because we're, you know, we have four kids and you're one of them. And if we don't have to drive one of them around, that'll make our lives a lot easier. They didn't say that, but I just imagine that's what they were saying. And incidentally, I drove myself to get you know, to, to take the driving test, which of course is illegal, but, um, because, um, you know, just busy suburban life, my parents didn't have time to drive me to the, so I just drove myself to take the test. (laughs) Anyway, memory lane, uh, by now, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, George Harrison, Ringo Starr have had a number of hits. I won't go into it too much, but, uh, 19, 1986, the U.S. government released a, re- a report detailing various research projects involving exposing people to radiation without their consent starting from 1944 up until the 1980s. So we have four decades post-World War II of the U.S. government um, sponsoring various different research proje- projects that involved exposing people to radiation. The report described how the U.S. government sponsored secret research on the effects of radiation on humans. The subjects were mainly, again, what do you think? White, privileged, educated. Nope. The subjects were mainly poor, sick, powerless, minorities, disabled. It's just, uh, I mean, you know, we like to point to Nazi Germany, and it's just like, my God. Okay. So the subjects were not told that they were participants in experiments. They were subjected to radiation without their knowledge or consent, and then scientists monitored the effects. For instance, uh, there's a whole whole list of these terrible experiments, but just a small list here. Feeding radioactive food to mentally disabled children or feeding radioactive food uh, secretly, you know, radioactive food to conscientious objectors. So conscientious objectors were men who were being drafted to war and were saying that because of their religious beliefs, they, they can't kill. And so they were 
conscientious objector objectors to the war and then wouldn't have to go to war. And since the American government hated those people because they hindered their war efforts, uh, they said, well, you know, let's, let's feed them radioactive food. You know, if you said this story to the average person, they'd be like, that's crazy. The U.S. government feeding radioactive food to mentally disabled children? That's ridiculous. There's no way that happened. Well, it did, folks. It did. And this is actually, the, gov- the government released this report. This isn't like some outside. The government said, this is what we've been doing, just so you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Another experiment. Inserting radioactive rods into the noses of school children. Inserting radioactive rods into the noses of school children. Yikes. Deliberately releasing radioactive chemicals over U.S. and Canadian cities. Again, the chemtrail people. Contrail? Chemtrail? Con? I don't know. Those people, they have reasons to believe their silliness because in the past it was actually happening. The U.S. government deliberately releasing radioactive chemicals over U.S. and Canadian cities. I mean, Canadian cities? That's not nice to our northern cold neighbors. Another study, injecting pregnant women, that's wonderful, injecting pregnant women and babies with radioactive chemicals. Let's see what, let's see what this does. And as I was saying earlier at the University of Washington, irradiating testes, that's plural for testicle, uh, I think, right? Uh, irradiating the testes of of prison inmates. No, testes is singular for testicles. As a man, I should know this. I'm going to look this up. All right. Online dictionary. Uh, testes is the plural of testis. Tes- testes and testis. What's testis? Testis? So testes is the plural of testis. Huh? Okay, after a long internet search that seems rather silly that it would take me a long time, I finally found Britannica.com. Testis is uh, a singular uh, testicle ball. (laughs) Plural is testes. So you have one testis and two or more testes. And it's also called testicle. So testis or testicle. So I've never heard testis, so testicle, but you can also say testicles. So it's all very confusing to me. You can, so you have one testis and two or more testes, and you have one testicle and two or more testicles. And there's, I guess, synonymous testis and testicle and testes and testicles. Oh, all this talk about testicles is making me testy. Okay, so 1991. Grunge. Uh, What else? Huskies were doing well in 91 too. Uh, Federal policy for the protection of human subjects is established. The federal policy for the protection of human subjects is established called the common rule. The common rule. The main elements of the common rule include the following. Requirements for assuring compliance with research institutions, 
requirements for researchers obtaining and documenting informed consent, requirements for institutional review board or IRB membership, function, operations, review, blah, 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 and additional protections for certain vulnerable research subjects like pregnant women, prisoners, and children. So the common rule is just a further uh, iteration on the ethics, uh, further clarification on the ethics of research that involves human. But this is all the way 91, man. It's like, it takes a long time for us to figure this shit out. But so this is the IRB. But as I was saying earlier, they were already talking about needing an, an independent review board anyway. This is a, an institutional review board. So for instance, when I did my research study, which involved human subjects, I had to have it reviewed by the IRB or the Institutional Review Board. So I had to submit to them my entire research protocol, uh, including how I was going to recruit participants, what I was going to do with my participants, how I was going to report on the, on the, on the data, um, if, if it was a benefit of some kind. Uh, all that I needed to write up and be formally reviewed by the IRB. Okay, 1994. The Clinton, Bill Clinton administration declassifies information about a lot of secret human experiments conducted from the 40s and the 80s. So that's uh, interesting. 1999 to the present, we have human research lawsuits are starting to increase dramatically. So throughout the t- throughout the zeros and it to the present, we have a lot of lawsuits, a lot of people starting to say, hey, your research harmed me, and I'm going to sue your ass. And many lawsuits are initiated against researchers, against universities, pharmaceutical companies, and institutional review board members, or IRBs. So presumably there were IRBs that were not uh, scrutinizing their uh, the research that was coming across their desk enough. 1999. The NIH and the OHRP require all people conducting and overseeing human subjects research have some training in research ethics. So remember when I was talking earlier about, you know, research should be conducted by qualified people? Well, it took until 1999 for NIH and OHRP to require that all people conducting and overseeing, like people on IRBs, uh, human research, uh, human subjects research, they have to be trained on research ethics, which you think would be, you know, something that would have been established a long time ago, but uh, had not been. Okay, 2010, 2010. People discover documents concerning research experiments on human subjects, subjects conducted by the U.S. government in Guatemala from 1946 to 1948. So 2010, this is not that long ago, and people discover documents concerning this terrible research experiment that was going on in Guatemala by the U.S. government in the 40s. The researchers chose to do the study in Guatemala because they would not have been permitted to do it in the United States. So I just want to repeat that. So the researchers are like, hey, we want to do this terrible research study but Americans won't let us do it. So let's go to Guatemala and do it to them because, you know, Guatemalans don't matter. So let's just do it to them. It's terrible. 
The research involved intentionally infecting over 1,300 people with uh, STIs or venereal diseases to test the effectiveness of penicillin. So they're like, hey, you know what? How effective is penicillin? Well, let's go to Guatemala and infect 1,300 people, and then we'll give them penicillin, and we'll see if it works. U.S. researchers used, guess what? Prostitutes, sex workers, to infect prison inmates. I mean, this involves all of the trappings of evil research. You go to another country, you get sex workers involved, you get prison inmates, you get insane asylum patients, and, uh, and you get Guatemalan soldiers, and you, uh, unbeknownst to them, infect them with syphilis and other sexually transmitted infections. And then you give them penicillin, and you see if it works. So again, I just want to say, the U.S. the U.S. government researchers in the '40s they they hire sex workers to infect prison inmates, uh, mental mentally ill patients, and Guatemalan soldiers with various different STIs. I mean, ugh. I mean, again, if you told someone this story, you'd be like, "Nah, U.S. government they don't do stuff like that." It's like, yeesh. Okay. They later tried infecting people with direct inoculations made with, okay, so this is a quote. Direct inoculations made from syphilis bacteria poured into the men's penises and on the forearms and faces that were slightly abraded, or in a few cases through spinal punctures. So I just want to, so instead of using the prostitutes, the sex workers, they're like, let's just try to directly infect these people with syphilis by pouring it into their penis. Let's pour the bacteria into their penis or just pour it on their body or on their face that, that's been you know cut a little bit. Let's see if you can infect them those ways. Yeesh. Again, without consent, presumably. Approximately 700 people were infected as part of the study, including orphan children. Oh, I'd include them in orphan children. Add them to the list of marginalized groups of people that researchers uh, crap on. And only 700 subjects were given penicillin. And 83 died as a result of the study. 83 people died. Can you imagine being a researcher and you're like, yeah, I want to see what happens when we do this. And I want to, because I want to write a paper on my research. And then 83 people die as just a kind of normal consequence of your study. And again, the subjects were not informed that they are part of the study. And they were not, they were not, volu- they didn't, you know, volunteer. They, they didn't give their consent to participate. When this research was revealed in 2010, the United States officially apologized to Guatemala for their studies. They're like, oh, sorry. Sorry about that. And a lawsuit has been launched against John Hopkins University, Bristol Myers Squibb, and the Rockefeller Foundation for alleged involvement in the study. Okay. 
So again, that's my list. It's not a full list. That's just the ones I decided to talk about. And we wonder why people believe in conspiracies. And we wonder why black people are suspicious of the government. And we wonder why black people are suspicious of doctors. I mean, I I remember hearing that, you know, in grad school. We had a special population consultant say, you know, with your black clients, they, they might they might be a little suspicious of you. And I'm thinking, why would they be suspicious of me? I'm a nice guy. Yeah, I have, I'm altruistic. I, 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 why would they be suspicious of me? And it's like, look at the history, man. Look at the history. They, people in my field have been fucking them over for years, treating them like they're lab rats, literally. And, you know, it's going to take a lot of years before we can hear from this. And, I'm just going to take a guess and say that our field has not done enough to repair the damage done here. If, you know, if, if you were just, let's see if this analogy pans out, but let's say for years you're secretly putting your garbage in the, in the uh, basement of your neighbor's house secretly and your neighbor's like, man, where's all this garbage come from? It was just appearing out of nowhere. How's this happening? And you're just like, ha, 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 he doesn't know. Keep putting garbage, keep, you know, four decades go by. And he's, you know, he's he's getting sick from it, and he's he has to get the dump, and he, and he thinks maybe it's his wife, and so he gets divorced, and he kicks her out of the house, and then he discovers the garbage keeps coming, and he tries to get back together with his wife, and it's just a big mess. And then one day, this uh, you know investigator comes by and says, "Hey, you can't do that. You can't put garbage in your neighbor's house." And you're like, "Oh, oh, okay, yeah, no biggie. I'll, I'll stop doing that." And then yeah, another ten, twenty years goes by, and uh, the investigator releases a list of everyone who's been putting garbage in other people's basements. And your neighbor reads this list and says. Oh, that's where all the garbage came from? Holy crap, my neighbor was putting his garbage in my basement. That's bullshit. That's I mean, for 40 years, I've been dealing with this shit. And so he goes over to the house, and he knocks on the door, and he says, Hey, you've been putting garbage for 40 years back then. And you open the door, and you're like, Oh, yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah, sorry about that. So sorry. And that's it? That's all you're going to say? Just sorry? That's it? Uh, I don't think that's enough. I think you're going to have to, uh, you know, take the guy's garbage out for the next 40 years or, you know, give him a hefty check or, I don't know, at least give him a rack of ribs or something. I mean, something's more than an apology here. You can't just, oh, sorry. I'm so sorry that we ter- we did those terrible things to your people for centuries. Uh, never mind. So Sorry. It uh, it doesn't work, right? If you're the if you're crapped on, it, it's not enough. The, and I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I think it involves awareness, ongoing apologies, uh, reparations. My ancestors were put in prisons in the United States just because they were Japanese during World War II. As I was saying earlier, lots of Germans in the United States. None of them were locked up, even though there were German spies, by the way. And they take all the Japanese people, round them up, put them in prisons. And we're not talking like nice prisons. We're talking like 
like camps in the mountains of Wyoming where it's like, you know, 20, 30 below. And they live in these tiny little, you know, uh, plywood houses that don't have any insulation. And, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. You know, they round up grandmas and children and men and women and law-abiding citizens who were born in this fucking country, and they, and they lock them up. And then, again, decades go by, and the government apologizes. I think Reagan was in office when that happened. And they do some reparations. They pay each person some, you know, minor amount of money. I think I think it was in the ten, twenty thousand range or something. But I can tell you, as a Japanese person who had family members put in these prisons, that's not enough. It's not enough for me. I don't feel like I'm, as you can tell, resolved on this issue. And so and maybe I never will, I don't know. But and you know, so with black people and poor people, they've been shit on through uh, these medical and psychological experiments for decades, and you know it's bullshit. They need to be uh, apologized to much to a much greater degree, in my mind. Anyway, okay, my voice is getting hoarse. It's time to say goodbye to you, patrons. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think of this episode. If you're interested in this sort of thing, I think it's fascinating. I don't know about you. All right, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.